Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley, this week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. With the 2020 presidential primary campaigns now in full swing, the race is on to win over Latino voters. Ice raids and deplorable detention center conditions have sparked public uproar in the U.S., but a harsh crackdown on migrant crossings in Mexico has gotten far less reaction. And Latino students are the largest racial ethnic group in Boston public schools. So why are the voices of Latino parents missing from crucial BPS decisions? Later in the show, you know less is more, the minimalist catchphrase. But a new exhibit at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston is turning that saying on its head. Embracing creative excess with less is a bore, maximalist art and design. But first, joining me in the studio, Julio Ricardo Varela, co-host of the In the Thick podcast and digital media director for Futuro Media. Welcome back, Julio. Hey, Callie. And also with me, Maria Kramer, reporter at the Boston Globe. Hello again, Maria. Hello. All right. Let's start right away with some of the detention questions and border crossing stuff. And there's quite a number of pieces for us to look at. First of all, I thought I would start with this piece by the Associated Press that says the border numbers have dropped and they attribute it to the heat and the Mexico crackdown, which we're going to get to in just a second. So I wanted to get your response to that. Um, It's kind of a precipitous drop, 28% drop in the number of migrants encountered by Customs and Border Protection. I actually hadn't heard much about this. You keep hearing more and more and more, not drop. Yeah, that, that's actually one of the, the probably, right, the misperceptions that we have, that, that there's sort of this flood of people coming in, and that's why the Trump administration is responding so aggressively, in addition to other reasons that he's responding aggressively. But yeah, that number doesn't surprise me when you think about the crackdown that's been going on at the border and the fact that it's just extremely dangerous to cross, not just because of the heat and because of the desert conditions, but, you know, I mean, we've had bra- uh, drownings there. There's that very haunting image of the father with his little girl, you know, when they tried to to cross and, and, and it ended tragically. So this trip is perilous and uh, and it's becoming only more so with the heat. So it, in many ways, it's not a surprising number. I guess what is surprising is that it doesn't get much coverage. Yeah, none. Um, oh, yeah. Well, historically, the summer has always seen drops. It's important to know that this data is actually apprehensions Mm. of Border Patrol. You know, yeah, it's, it's, like, yes. it's how the yes. government determines that there's more people crossing because we tend to apprehend more people. And that's, so it's it's kind of data that has a history of, I dare say, be used a little bit for political reasons. Mm. I am kind of surprised that you don't hear Trump saying like, oh, look, um, everything's working. But with that said, you know, historically you see apprehensions go down because of the weather. But yeah, the Mexico policy of getting, quote unquote, tougher on immigration, especially under a progressive leftist president like Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, 
who is like the classic leftist enigma of Latin America, there's been a change in Mexico. Clearly. And I think the Trump administration's kind of wants to make sure that they told the Mexican, which I don't buy it, but they're like, we told Mexico to get tougher. And look, they're getting tougher and things are getting better. And that's what they're saying. Well, here's what they're exactly doing. National Guard raiding hotels, buses and trains to round up migrants. And they're talking about scenes of, of weeping Central American mothers, yeah. similar to the kinds of scenes that we've seen here. The president, as you've said, is a leftist, but he's been kind of quiet. What's happening over there in terms of its harshness getting as much attention on this side? Well, I, I mean, I'd like to delve a little deeper into that story and wonder, I mean, if that's the feeling uh, uh, among all Mexicans across mm. this yeah. very large country or if it's the Mexicans who are right at the border. You know, when things are happening right in front of you and there's this crush of people, that's where your feelings of empathy might quickly turn to apathy, right? You're seeing something and it's just repetitive and, and suddenly you're not feeling the heartfelt um sympathy that you might have before. That's human nature. Yeah, there's a couple of things. I think in that AP story mentions support. Remember when the caravans were coming last mm-hmm. year that mm-hmm. I think pre-caravan, the I think it was Universal, which is it's a huge newspaper in, in Mexico. I think they polled people and then public opinion has changed. Mm. But I also think even when you look at what's happening in Mexico, traditional I would say migrant-friendly organizations that actually associate themselves with Lopez Obrador. I think there's they talk to a priest, and he's kind of like, yeah, I think it's enough. And and for someone yeah, like that, yeah, who's yeah. actually been, if you look at previous histories of this priest, mm-hmm. has been very like, you know, migration is a right. Why is Mexico suddenly getting tougher? Is it the Trump effect? Because when Lopez Obrador ran. He was very like, I have to defend Mexico and against Donald Trump and I'm going to fight this man. And now he's just become an extension of what Enrique Peña Nieto has done. It's like Mexico has become mm. – there's a saying right now that the, the actual border of the United States goes is the south of Mexico yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, in a yeah. lot of ways because it's militarized. They get a lot of money through the Merida Initiative. Uh, look it up, people, in the State Department. You can see how much money and, – and I think there's this sort of – fear from Mexicans to say like, well, the Americans aren't going to like us, so we're going to have to be tough. And I don't know if that's going to play well with Lopez Obrador. Well, I think it's interesting that it says in this article, the head of Mexico's National Immigration Institute resigned when the crackdown was announced in June to head off Trump's threat of tariffs on Mexican products. So I thought that was interesting. And also they interviewed a few just normal people who said, "Okay, this is dangerous. A lot of them have died. I think they should stay in their home countries, referring to the people who are coming. And they are really mad about Mexico potentially contributing money to the developmental aid in Central America, which has been a suggestion for us as a country. If we give aid to those countries that are struggling, that'll automatically, on that end, before people get on the road to try to come here, Mm. reduce some of the numbers. So apparently everybody's not with that program in Mexico just quite yet. No, I'm... Yeah. I mean, I I think when it comes to Central America, I mean, I think the United States just has to fess up and say, like, we we screwed up Central America. Let's just be real. You know, it was, it happened after the Vietnam War. You know, I don't want to say the chickens have come home to roost, but in a lot of ways they have. It's like, so we don't have a conversation as Americans about the factors that we created, even the drug war. I think there needs to be a serious conversation about Central America. And I don't think we as Americans have 
the courage to have that conversation. I don't know. Yeah, and, and you know, I mean, the responsibility falls on reporters like me as well to mm-hmm. raise that conversation. I mean, I covered MS-13, the federal trial, a couple years back because of all those horrific crimes that happened in Chelsea. And one of the big things that came up over and over again from the defense and the prosecution was that MS-13 is actually an American-created gang. Mm-hmm. And that is something that we just don't hear, right? And that was something that the conversation with reporters have on, you know, whether it be on Fox, whether it be on MSNBC, whether it be in the pages of the New York Times or the Boston Globe, it, it, it's a conversation that we need to have more as reporters. It's our duty to inform because we know this. We know these historical facts. And sometimes we don't want to get too hunkered down in these details, right? We just want to tell the story that's happening in front of us right now. Well, no, this context is important because this is why we're here. Right. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Julio Ricardo Varela of Futuro Media and Maria Kramer of the Boston Globe. And we're discussing the latest Latinx news you need to know. So a lot of people have hit the streets in protest of bad conditions we've heard about now from both congresspersons and lawyers and other people who have managed to get inside some of these detention centers. Here's uh, some chanting from a recent anti-ICE protest in Boston at which 18 demonstrators were arrested. So, um, you know, I wanted to play that because it's big. I mean, it was pretty powerful sound. It's not a few people. People are paying attention to this. And it's anti-ice because that's where it begins for a lot of people before we get to the conditions in the detention centers. We're right at the point now where President Trump has announced that his policy uh, using ICE to round up people to send them to these contested contingent centers is about to start again. So... Here we are, and it's following what you just said, Maria, about people don't want to deal with the context of how we got here, but here we are, and it's pretty dangerous and scary. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and I think, you know, there's something awe-inspiring about watching these kinds of protests form. People, I think, feel so helpless listening to the news, watching these reports, uh, seeing these images of children in cages, and they're furious, and all they can do is take to the streets. You know, these 18 arrests that you described, I believe Rachel Rollins is not, the Suffolk District Attorney is not going to pursue these these protesters, uh, not surprisingly, but, but you know, getting arrested, it's like this is a way of, of, of showing my fury. This is my civil disobedience, because I don't know what else to do. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, and especially in Massachusetts, right, you know, uh, where the abolitionist movement was so strong, where gay marriage began. So I think that there's almost like in the DNA of people of Boston, I have to do something. I have to be part of a movement that just says no to this. And Maria, also where many of our representatives have said, let's dismantle ICE, period. Right. I'm thinking of Congressperson Ayanna Presley. Uh, Julio. Yeah, I mean, you see what's going on. It's important to remind people that this enforcement culture just didn't happen on January 21st, yep. you know, 2017, uh, when President Trump was inaugurated. It's fascinating because having covered immigration now for years, I've there's a lot more awareness and there's a lot more uh, desire for information and there's a lot more like, oh, let's go into detention centers and see the conditions. I struggle with the bigger picture because I think we as Americans have allowed for this notion of migrants as criminals Mm. become part of national policy and actually be bipartisan. And it's very uncomfortable because when you say that, 
I get, you know, just go to my Twitter feed and you start getting like, well, you know, Trump's the worst. But then you have, you know, Cecilia Munoz, who used to work under Obama, saying, well, you know, we deported people, but our deportations were different. And like you start having former Obama administration officials saying like, we didn't separate the kids from their families, but we helped create an institutionalized family detention. So the big question for us is, how did we get here? I guess when I see these protests, I, I think of years before of people protesting similar things. And not, not only that, we talk about Bush, we talk about Clinton. I always say, look at the State of the Union address that Bill Clinton gave, and he talked about you know, the, the rising wave of the quote-unquote illegal immigrant. And a lot of the language he uses is, is, is what the current president uses. Well, and a lot of the policies that Trump is is now um, enforcing, you know, had their roots in the 90s. Right. So, yeah. I, so, I, so the question of, like, what do we do is a big question because I, I understand the immediacy of the short term of these conditions and these centers, which don't surprise me because there's been a history. Right. You start looking at Border Patrol and ICE and there's plenty of things that have happened in the past, you know, reports of abuse and like it's been there it's been chronicled but the bigger question for me is this isn't short term this is how are we as a country looking at this situation and for me it's always been the moment we've become to quote unquote criminalize migration whatever that means is that we've created an umbrella of anyone that is an immigrant or from not from here is instantly labeled a criminal and the logical step. And that's when you get a president to say, like, when you mention criminal, what's the next word that comes out of his mouth? It's like MS-13 gang members. And so that's the part where I, I struggle with in a lot of ways, because I think this country has to start looking at its sins and realize that, you know what, what we've been doing with immigration the last 30 years was a complete failure. Well, I think obviously that's going to have to happen. But right now, I think when, as Maria was saying, when people take to the street, they feel as though they're engaged in some yeah. civic participation to make people continue to pay attention to it. Because yeah. the fear with us in America is that we'll be all whipped up this month, next month, nothing. You know, it as if it goes away. But if you look at across the world and see, for example, what's going on in Hong Kong, those yeah. people have been in the streets right. in terms of millions and you know, forcing people to pay attention. So it has a sense of like that, that at least for the people in the streets, even wherever you fall ideologically, mm -hmm. people do not want to see children in cages. Yes. That's just the bottom line. And so something, even if we have no policy, which we don't, some other something has to happen in between, you know, and that's, that's no, what I people said, are like in the I said, I, I tried to couch know? my, my yeah. thoughts like I struggle with it because— yeah. There's a part of me that's like, where were you before? Yeah, yeah. I, I can no, show you the cages from like ten years ago. I mean, well, in a lot well of ways. were they this filled? I guess. Well, right? But I'm just saying, <laughs> it's like there were. You know, one of the big things when this happened, I'll leave you with this last point. It's like there's a there was a photo that was shared on the internet last year where it's like, oh my god, the Trump administration it was these kids inside a border patrol detention. They were sleeping, and guess what? It was from 2014. That's right. I remember that. Yeah. I mean, it was that's not right. from 2018. Yeah. I'm going to move on now because we're going to be talking about that a lot coming up. Um, there's a couple of new uh, reports out about the growth of the Hispanic population. New high in 2018, according to a Pew Research study, says the U.S. Hispanic population reached a record 59.9 million in 2018, and that's up 1.2 million 
I'm going to pair that with a story from the <laughs> census in Texas, which says Hispanics will soon be the majority of Texans. The U.S. Census estimates, I guess it's the old one, because as we know, the new one is in somewhat contentious state at this moment. <laughs> so, But the bottom line is that that has a lot of import for certainly federal funds and all of that, but but political status as well. So I wanted to get both of your response. Okay, I'll go first. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's not a surprise. It's, you know, the Hispanics are the largest minority in the country. So the fact that their numbers are rising just speaks to what's been a historic growth. And uh, I, I think where we're still waiting to see the effects of it are in politics, right? I mean, yeah. is Texas going to go blue, <laughs> you know, as this as this population increases. So that's where, you know, that's where I start to wonder, you know, what these numbers actually mean. People are really being counted. Are we going to see them being counted truly in the census that's coming up? So, yeah, I, I think that numbers that show um, population growth are one thing, how those numbers bear out, what it means for these people, right. what it means for the communities in which they live. You know, that's those are those are the stories that that, uh, you know, you want to see, see more follow up on. Yeah, I'm I'm fascinated by the fact that the fastest growing region of Latinos in this country is the South mm-hmm. and which, the Midwest. And right? the Midwest. Well, it's mm-hmm. like the South. Yes. I think it was like the North South Dakota. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. And then and then certain parts, like certain pockets, like if you look at North Dakota, like just the state. And I mean, in terms of numbers, mm-hmm. I think the the study was like it's like thirty thousand. It went from like twelve thousand six hundred to thirty thousand. But the South fascinates me. Because I think that's where you start seeing a region that could potentially change. I mean, you look at places like North Carolina, for example, where there's a huge immigrant rights movement. Mm -hmm. Georgia. Um, I believe the first Latina is running for Congress in Georgia. Um, Obviously, you think of Florida and Texas and all those places. and, And Texas, to me, is such a fascinating state in a lot of ways. I mean... The role of faith and Christianity and well, evangelism. Yeah. yeah, it's like how in Texas, mm-hmm. you know, this whole notion of like Texas turning blue or is it really purple? That's a big question because when you look at parts of like the Rio Grande Valley where you've had a, a literally disenfranchised community that is predominantly Latino, mostly Mexican and Mexican American descent. But they've never been part of the political right. process. Right, so you cannot assume their population right. means so like right. the, power. So when we were yeah. de- when we were doing in the thick last year, um, mm-hmm. a couple months ago, we were talking to a lot of these young people from the Rio Grande Valley who've come back, mm-hmm. who said the first thing they said is like when Beto O'Rourke went down there last year to run for Senate, it was like the first time like a real Democratic candidate came down for Texas. I'm running for Senate. Like they just felt like there's actual real outreach. So I'm with you, Maria. Like in terms of. What does this mean? Because, right. like, it, you know, is it going to lead to political power or political representation? Or is it just mean, you know, that the current administration just has more people to uh, to mock and, 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 you know, and stereotype? So I don't know. Well, that's depressing. I know what I'm just saying. <laughs> well, we shall see. Um, well, what, a couple things I want to talk to you about with regard to this, because the numbers are up that we've now determined that. Um, some interesting things. Uh, first of all, President Donald Trump is out there in front speaking of political power, trying to get Latino votes. And he's kicked off his campaign in Florida. Um, Here is an interesting interview that Jose Diaz-Balart had with him for Telemundo News. This is in late June. 
I've been tough. You've been and yet tough, my poll but, numbers with Hispanics have gone way up. But the fact is that there is a percentage of Latinos that vote of that, no doubt, there is up to 30% of the Latino population who has supported you among the voters. Well, right now, that I'm would at make 50%. It 70%. Well, right now, I'm at 50. Don't. But let's talk about the immigrants. I know, but you, for a Republican, I'm at 50%. I went up 70 points. You know why? The Hispanics. I have not seen any poll that says, well, we'll with show all it due to respect, you. that you we'll have 50% no, no, of the we'll Latino show it to support. I thought that was incredible. I mean, Jose just kept saying, he said... And I know Jose Diaz-Balart. Yes, he like, kept he saying... He's a straight shooter. The president kept saying that Hispanics love me, and Jose said, no, they don't. I mean, this was literally the, the, the yeah. interview, back and forth. The math was, also goes from uh, <laughs> somehow 70 points, even though... No, but the thing is, he, there's this thing that <laughs> really? the White House does. There's a poll that came out, I believe it was um, PBS Marist, where they talk about approval rating. Yes. And it was about 50% of Latinos in that poll, but people, what they don't understand, and I've been doing this for years because I always look at these polls and I'm like, it's a subgroup. How many Latinos did you interview? Where are they from? Um, I think it came down to, I mean, don't quote me, but it was- It, it was it, 200 something. Like 200 yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. And it was very highly skewed conservative. Um, they These polling companies do a really good job. They don't, the bigger polling companies in the United States create polls that do not accurately represent the US Latino community. So perfect example, one latest poll about the census from Harvard Harris, um, <laughs> I think interviewed like 284 Latinos and three of them were from Colorado and they also interviewed like three from New Hampshire. And so like, when you think of like, or New Jersey, they do a really good job of, of not accurately portraying Latinos. So that when you, but, the, but it gets dangerous because what's happened, and if you look at what the White House does, is that the moment there's a poll out and it's like, oh, PBS Marist, yes. oh, 50% Hispanics, you have like places like the Washington Examiner, you have places like uh, Breitbart that go, oh, President Trump gets 50% approval rating. And and then what happens is that you have the president tweeting it, the White House tweeting it, and then even though it's not true, um, even though what he tells, you know, he goes from the 70%, it's already out there. Yeah, that's right. Well, along with the president doing his thing, there are the Democratic candidates who are trying their best to awaken the sleeping giant. Um, and one of the ways that they're doing it is called hispandering, and they're beginning that quest uh, by speaking Spanish. Here's Beto O'Rourke answering a question during the first Democratic debate in English and Spanish. This economy has got to work for everyone, and right now we know that it isn't. And it's going to take all of us coming together to make sure that it does. Necesitamos incluir cada persona en el éxito de esta economía. Pero si queremos hacer eso, necesitamos incluir cada persona en nuestra democracia. And here's our contributor, Luis Jimenez from the Mass Politics Profs, discussing the use of Spanish on the Democratic debate stage in a recent episode of Under the Radar. My initial reaction was I, w I appreciate, of course, that people speak Spanish. It's a really nice change of tone. Um, but, but... <laughs> um, Booker was was pretty awful when he said it, and and, and because and it sounded like uh, he was just reacting to Beto, and so because he was reacting to Beto, it just didn't it didn't you know it just it felt very, really pandering to me. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the case of Julian, he actually used the wrong uh, he didn't, oh my God. He, he used the wrong uh, word. He said um, uh, para presidente or por presidente instead of para presidente. So anyway, um, you you wouldn't have noticed that unless you. All right. So is it working? Is that going to work? Is his spandering going to work this time? 
I mean, I just listen to it and I cringe. You know, it, it's, I mean, he says, esto democracia. Esto de democracia. Esta democracia. Yeah, just, just, you know, just move on. If you, know how to, if, you, if you know how to speak Spanish, if you know how to speak Spanish fluently and you listen to that, you you, you, you don't really feel all that grateful. You just, you just kind of, you're just like, oh, you poor soul. Can you? <laughs> just stop. Just stop. Just speak in English, you know. Um, and, does, but Maria, does it make, does it make um, Latino voters feel like they're, you know, somebody's paying attention to them. Or are they just like, really? No. I don't. I think it depends. <laughs> you know. I, probably. I, I was. I was like, no. But yeah. um, but you know, I mean, I think there's a New York Times story about this, and and you know, they mentioned that only 13 percent of Latinos who are currently registered to vote in the United States even speak Spanish. Mm. So who exactly are we appealing to? You know, and and those 13 percent are they? How impressed are they going to be? Uh, you know, and that that that, that, that it's just. <laughs> That they're speaking bad Spanish. Exactly. Yeah. Professora, okay. yeah. Professora Craven I'm bringing sorry. it. I'm not the only one saying this. Yeah. There's, a, there's a person quoted in the same story I'm referencing, Arturo, um, Arturo Vargas, and he's a chief executive officer of the National Association of Latino and Elected Appointed Officials, and he says, and I quote, if you're going to butcher the language, you are better off sticking to English. Well, there you go. <laughs> I mean, the, what I said, I've said this before. Be quick, because I want to squeeze yeah, something Yeah, but the thing in. is, remember, it was on Telemundo. <laughs> yes. Um, so I think... It was a tr strategic decision by Beto to do it. It just didn't come across as good. You know <laughs> yeah, what I mean? Yeah. It just came out of you're like, yeah. like it just was Record like scratch. the timing was not. It was just it just wasn't the right time. And as I say, pobre Beto, pobrecito, poor Beto. Yeah. Um, anyway. Cory Booker trying to jump on top of that. One. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sadder. and that was all. Yeah, very whatever. Okay. okay. <laughs> so I don't want to leave this conversation without our talking about um, this fantastic series that Bianca Vasquez-Jones did for us here at WGBH yeah. um, about Boston's Latino parents being underrepresented in, in Boston public school um, decisions. And... It's so obvious if you think about it, which I hadn't realized that yeah. we hadn't even talked to them to say, where are your voices? So the bottom line is, um, here's just a couple things that she came out with that, that one of the reasons why they are missing. So often, this is a small thing, but a huge one, when they go to meetings, speaking in Spanish, the first thing is in, the first comments are in English and then Spanish later. Whereas she said, so you, here you've come, you're a parent, and you do need a translator, and, you know, that's the first thing you hear. You feel like, okay, well, I'm going to be here and I'm not going to know what's going on. And yeah. I came to hear uh, about my child's welfare in school. Um, she also profiled a school, Otis Elementary, where they're doing a really great job of involving these parents. But the bottom line is um, there could be more um, power positioning for them if their voices were out front. It appears that the new um, superintendent is going to try to do that, but, you know. Yes, yeah, here's where we are. I, yeah, kudos to yeah. to the um, WGBH and, and Bianca. I, I really, um, I really enjoyed that series a lot, and I let it be known on Twitter <laughs> the moment yeah. I, I tweeted at Bianca. Um, Bianca Vasquez Jones. Yeah, she yeah. was. Yeah. She was. It was just. Here's the thing. I I guess because I work in that, I was because that's the type of shows that we do on Latino USA. It was kind of cool to hear people speaking Spanish on my local, you know, public radio morning program about education. About which education, I, which is your thing. Not I just about, about immigration. It. Yeah, yeah. Just, and it was like, and it's yeah. parents who care about yeah. their kids. It's so yeah. universal. But one of the things that struck me, there was one part of a parent which I loved was like, "Hey, my kid wasn't here. You wouldn't have a job." Like it was like, like, you know, I, I think we don't do good enough as a Boston community to remind ourselves that 
the vast majority of like students in the in BPS right now are are of Latin American descent. And what does that mean? You know, it's changing. I mean, the system is changing. Um, I do think we have a superintendent who kind of is starting to get understand that you kind of have to deal with that. Um, it's early days. I, I do think it was honest to hear BPS officials say, yeah, we still got a lot of work to do. Um, but you know what? I think the story of BPS is the story of Boston. Mm. I mean, there's an invisible mm. Latino community. And we've discussed that here. You know, and, and mm. so to at the power positions. We're yeah, the power about. positions, yeah. but also yeah. like, I, you know, I, to hear these parents who actually write, really do care for their children, may, whether whatever reason it is, are we creating a welcome city? Are we creating a welcoming community or a welcoming school to say like, hey, you are part of the school? And I think that's there's a, there's a history there. We can't deny that there has been a history of exclusion at BPS. Right. I mean, I think in the superintendent, um, I was a little defensive when Bianca uh, approached her with yeah. her findings mm-hmm. and said, well, I, I don't necessarily know that that's, that's really the reality, but, you know, we're definitely going to be making a more concerted effort. Then you read her comments, mm-hmm. which she did, refused to elaborate on, when she's talking about the exam schools, she's like, oh, yeah, you know, we should probably take a look at, at, at changing that, you know, because it's really costing us a lot of money. And then, you know, Ivan Espinosa Madrigal from the Lawyers Committee says, that's not the point. The point is that these are, this is about access, it's about being able to participate participate in yeah. these exam schools and you're talking about money so right then and there you're, you're hearing why it's so necessary to have um, Latin parents you know, Latinx parents um, involved in, in in these schools because the, the, the wrong conversations being had you know yeah. the, the problem with the examples right is access and participation and and yet you know you have to kind of remind the powers that be that that's what's going on and you only do that by having your voice heard in the school district and this is a uh, been an ongoing issue I mean trying to get the, the education right in the in the Boston public schools is is a big deal. Yeah. So this is not to be this dismissed is a history. It's an history. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can't right. slide it. And yeah. I just welcome it because I do think we have to do more as journalists to continue to shed light of what's going on in this. And so anyone that to me, it's like anyone that's trying to answer this question from a journalistic perspective mm-hmm. in Boston is doing good work for the community. So I I, I really enjoyed the series a lot. No, she's a fantastic reporter. Yeah, right. She's, she I is. just wanted, it just was a reminder that there are some obvious questions to ask that sometimes don't get asked because yeah. that perspective is not. The questions you know, are so obvious. obvious. Yeah. But, and then, but, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I felt kind of stupid afterwards after I read it, like, well, yeah, I guess I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, let's switch to something lighter. Uh, Yay! A lot, a lot of, a uh, lot of pop culture stuff oh, going Hoodie on. Oh, has been dying to talk All right. about this. All right, this is from Comedy Central's Alternati- Alternatino. Oh, thank Alternati- you, Alternatino. Alternatino. Thank you, with Arturo Caruso. Yeah. The show's Facebook post about this sketch states that it goes out to people who hate immigrants but have never actually met one. Here we go. <laughs> I'm gonna take jobs from hardworking Americans. Yes, first the farm jobs. Then the factory jobs, and then f- it. I'll get into a graduate program through affirmative action, and I'm gonna take the lawyer jobs, and the doctor jobs, and the aerospace engineer jobs. But then I'm gonna be too lazy to work, so I'm gonna leave off the American taxpayer. How does that make any sense? Don't worry about it. <laughs> okay, this is Genius. pretty funny. This Genius. is pretty funny. This is Comedy Central people. So if you came in in the middle of that thinking, what is happening? Yeah. It's 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 meant it's to a be sketch. Funny. It's, it's a sketch. Satire. People. <laughs> yeah, right. All right. 
You guys love it? I love that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I have I have not watched the show yet. I will oh, I'm, I'm a big fan. Oh, I can't wait. I, it's um, so good. I mean, I you know, just looking through this, just looking through some of the clips, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I, I think one of the jokes that were made was about um, uh, an ICE um, PSA announcement. Yes. <laughs> you know, touting that no, 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 you know. Our children are cage free. Um, oh they're allowed God. to roam in fields. I mean, that is just so. It, it's it's such a horrific There's joke. Some it's guys. so funny. Yeah, right? it, because it, yeah, it just speaks to what it is to be bilingual. Like we don't get a lot of opportunities to make fun of ourselves as a community because it's always like, Very like the serious. fact that yeah. it's serious. Or it's like, or you're gonna just like. What's great about the show is that he's trying to create a comedic experience that actually addresses the complexities of the Latino community. Yeah. Which is really hard to do. Right. But he's doing it. There's a great one about like, he's from Guatemala and he does a commercial about like how Guatemala is better than Costa Rica because all these American tourists like go to Costa Rica and he goes and he's like, you know, screw, screw Costa Rica. And it's so good. And it's like an ongoing thing. And there's a great one. And he does a great pit bull impression. Which is so good. I uh, well, that would I I would do I, alone just to see that. Just That'd be watch hilarious. It. Yeah. it sounds like very subversive humor. That, yes, you know, well, it, just... it's like independent subversive humor. It's totally up my and alley. It's, oh yeah, of anybody with a sense That's of humor. I love yeah. it. Here's another one. There, uh, this is from the trailer for HBO's Le- Los Espookies. Los Espookies, a Spanish Los language company speaking a Spanish language about a group of young goths <laughs> who put together a peculiar business providing horror to those who need it. <laughs> Hacemos algo real para gente que realmente lo necesita. Carnales, hay una chamba que me han estado ofreciendo. La embajadora quiere que fijamos una abducción. ¿Qué tal si la atrapamos dentro de un espejo? Como un espejo embrujado. Just really innovative stuff. And in Spanish language on HBO, there's a lot of stuff happening there. It seems like moving forward. More genius. Mm -hmm. Like it is. It's (laughs) like, it's almost like HBO and Comedy Central finally looked into my brain and said like Julio you're going to get these two great shows on the summer <laughs> this is, this is, when you turn 50 you were their niche audience and I'm just like you. give me more <laughs> <laughs> All right. Maria, are you looking forward I, to that? Yes, for okay. sure. And okay. one of my favorite things about it was Julio Torres, one of the stars of it, saying, you know, that they took a risk with having subtitles, but saying, you know, the rest of the world has been dealing with subtitles for American movies. I think that we can handle it. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to close out by just saying I am thrilled because One Day at a Time was renewed. Yes. It was, I saw that it was too. kicked off Netflix and now it's found a home on Pop. TV, I think it's called. Yep, yep. And I love it, love it. And I can't say enough about it. And people should find it and look at it because it's fabulous. So thank you. We thank can be you. we can be uplifted at the end. Yes. <laughs> Pop culture does that. I know. <laughs> Julio Ricardo Varela is the co-host of the In the Thick podcast and the digital media director for Futuro Media. And Maria Kramer is a reporter for the Boston Globe. Coming up, minimalism is having a moment thanks to lifestyle icons like master clutter conqueror Marie Kondo. But some prefer to live life governed by the maxim, more is more, which is at the heart of a new exhibit at Boston's Institute of Contemporary Art. We dive into the world of maximalism with Less is a Bore, Maximalist Art and Design at the ICA. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm 
Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. And the idea of extra also happens to be the topic of our next discussion. The exhibition is about an approach to art that looks more to pile on than strip away. We have something else you might be familiar with the phrase, less is more. It describes minimalism, an art movement characterized by simple content and form, with no personal expression. But a new exhibit at the Institute of Contemporary Art declares less is a bore, marking a renewed excitement about maximalism with its loud and layered complex visuals. It's an approach, and with a work in this show, which spans from 1969 to the present, it shows artists putting in more information, more visual stimulation, more pattern, more decoration, more adornment. That's essentially what's going on in the galleries. All right, let's walk through. Okay. Yeah. Guest curator Janelle Porter selected the 40 artists for Less is a Bore, Maximalist Art and Design. We took a trip to the Institute of Contemporary Art to speak with her and explore the exhibit. Hello, Janelle. Hello. I'm so glad to be with you. Thank you. So I embrace more is more mm-hmm. because it's that's my style. <laughs> so I love what you've done here in this exhibit. It's it's so wonderful. How did you come to pick these 40 artists to really express maximalist art and design? Well, making exhibitions is always really subjective and i often have to say that there are probably 29 ways that you could make a show about one idea but these artists particularly are artists that have inspired the the exhibition itself who have made really significant work that directly addresses some of the uh, main ideas in the show about pattern and decoration and ornament and maximalism more is more and you know artists i've had conversations with Artists sometimes who have looked to other artists, you'll find when you're talking with artists, they'll say, well, you know, you should check out this person. This this artist was very significant to me. And you kind of find all of these links and you put it all together and there's editing and, and all those things that, you know, that that we do as curators. But again, subjective. They're all these artists are all over the place. They are by and large in America. And I've been doing this for a long time and you start to know what's out there. <laughs> You choose. (laughs) Okay. So when we say layered and bold with complex visuals, I mean, you see it in the work, but how do you describe that? How do you, how do you you make it clearer for, for people who are trying to say, well, is that just a collage? Right. Right. (laughs) And in a way, how do I, we describe art to during a radio show, which we have our own challenges here in this room. (laughs) The works in the exhibition you'll find when you see the show have each of them a lot of color, a lot of detail, a lot of lines and flowers and patterns and ornamented surfaces. Those ideas are all in the work. And I mean, it's a little bit of a visual extravaganza, the exhibition. And so when when one thinks about, you know, a kind of like a clothing pattern or a wallpaper pattern, a city street, uh, the fenestration of uh, all of the skyscrapers that surround the ICA. These are the kinds of ideas that are critical to the exhibition, and I that you that you'll see in the show. <laughs> Does that make? 
It's okay. I guess my question to you is what strikes you? Because you said some of it is a little bit subjective, but of course you have a practice eye at going right for, wow, this is really a clear expression of this. Okay. So there are many things in the show as I go through it that would not be my personal taste, mm -hmm. but I have a definite resonance with it because I'm a more is more person. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you, from your expert eye, find that resonance? Well, I love that you said the word taste because it's like a dirty word that we like to avoid because we are interested in a kind of objectivity that you're looking expansively, that you have an open eye and that it's not maybe just the things that you like to look at that you might include in an exhibition. The There are things in the show that 10 years ago I saw and did not like. Uh, Interesting. Tastes change, right? Yeah. That you... Maybe I would have decorated my house differently 15 years ago than I have now. There's a lot more pattern in my house. And a lot of it, I think, is because of thinking about the show for so many years and looking more into the work and looking at looking at the things that artists were looking at. They're looking at Islamic tile work. They're looking at the patterns of Japanese kimono. They're looking at architecture ornamentation. They're looking at garments and performance costume. And I suppose like I let my taste lead me around a bit. And uh, by and large, it's a lot of things I like, but I am the first to say that not everybody is going to like it. And even I love you're saying like, well, I like that one. I don't like that one. But even like mo mostly because of what you like for yourself, you're responding to the exhibition. I think some people might feel like they're getting a rash when they're in the show. <laughs> I don't think so, because as I say, even the ones that are not my particular taste, I resonate with. I enjoy what the artist is doing, even if it's not something that I would hang on my wall or put on my floor or whatever. Now, I'm interested in a couple of things. Let me pick up from something you just said, because you mentioned all the various ways that artists are taking in other other patterns, other cultures, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and we, I think, as Americans, if we go by food, have expanded our palate as well. So are we more open now to more is more than in a way that we couldn't have been, let's say, in the 50s um, when yeah. artists maybe have tried to have some of this expression? I mean, I think we are, and I also don't feel like any expert in this, but, I mean, we at this table are old enough to remember what food was like, say, 10 years ago and what the kinds of things you get. It's such actually a great analogy because even in this neighborhood of the ICA, there's all these restaurants and there's kind of one of everything. And you see that people are so much more interested in food and in different kinds of flavors. And it's like there's more access now. A lot of that is the internet, right? It's this kind of sharing. People are able to travel is less expensive. People are sort of able to get out into the world. With immigration, of course, we just get all of these great people that bring their taste and culture and food, fashion, everything. I do think things are more open. I think we're more open. I think it can be uncomfortable to be so open. And I think, you know, people are very uncomfortable right now and the world that we're living in but that I was even surprised in the exhibition to go from ideas about pattern and decoration which came through uh, came together at a time of pluralism to now I was thinking very much when I got to the last rooms of the show about the internet about the information glut mm. 
about how much information we're taking in. And that like in 1970, when the book Future Shock was released, that book was about information glut, about the transition from an industrial to a super industrial society. And now look where we are. Like they thought it was too much then. And now 50 years, yeah. <laughs> we're like, mm. what are we doing? We're looking at screens all day long. Everybody's looking at their phone all the time. The information is instantaneous. You know where your friends are eating, what they're eating, what they're wearing, what they're looking at. I, there's already pictures of the show all read all over Instagram. Mm. So it's kind of like, yes, we're more open, but it's also there's so much more information available to us. And, you know, you brought up something that I, I hadn't thought about until this moment, which is that because of the Internet, we think we're multitasking. You know, there's all kinds of studies saying you really can't multitask. But the bottom line is, if you think you're doing two things at once, you're layering upon layering upon layering. Yes. So your access to more is more uh, as a kind of uh, multidimensional experience is happening pretty much all the time. <laughs> yes. And I I do think it's it's in the show. You know, one of the ways that like sort of process information as a curator is by writing the catalog essay. You can put so much more into that. And where that, I don't want to, you know, knock on you, sketch it out for you. Obviously, that would be boring. But the, <laughs> the uh, ideas about what artists were looking at and what they were able to look at, say, in the 1970s, in the center of the American art world, which was New York, was totally different than now. You really had to go to the museums to see art. You really had to go out into the world and travel, which wasn't as accessible as it is now. And, for example, in the 1970s, the Islamic wing and the Met opened. They'd had this incredible collection, but there had never been a whole wing devoted to Islamic art. And at the same time, in the 70s, there was a lot of anti-Middle Eastern sentiment. There was the oil crisis. There was a hostage crisis. I mean, there was like, it's not so different than now, unfortunately. So we think about the way artists were looking then, what they had access to. Compare that to now. It's so different. And artists, I think, have to deal with more, take in more, and still are able to filter and regurgitate these incredible objects for us to look at that include more, when we walked into the last room of the show, you know, you let out a kind of like, wow, mm -hmm. because even the exhibition builds on itself. It sort of starts with these kind of clear examples. And when we you and as we go through, we pick up more ideas, we pick up more ideas. And then the last room of the show kind of brings together all of that. I perhaps because I'm a woman of a certain age, like feel those changes. You know, when I was in college, I didn't have a computer. I got email during my first job. Now look, it, like not that much time has passed. And I don't know, maybe I'm a little bit of a delicate flower, but like I think that it's a great, it's a, it's a seismic shift. Mm -hmm. I, I think I would agree with you. I'm Callie Crossley and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston with guest curator Janelle Porter. We're discussing her exhibition, Less is a Bore, Maximalist Art and Design, which is on view at the ICA now until September 22nd. So in preparation for this conversation, I just sort of searched around to see what are thoughts about minimalism and maximalism. And there was a lot about Marie Kondoing our lives. <laughs> Everybody knows she's the super declutterer. And so there's a whole rush toward doing that, you know, personally decluttering, decluttering. However, uh, in terms of art and in terms of design, people are really actually responding to more is more. So it's a funny kind of balancing act. Because I'm told by some of these articles that I read, it's a good economy. And in a good economy, you would like more, whereas people tend to go toward minimalism when 
it's rough economically. I had not thought of it in those terms. Are you aware of that at all as it may impact artists and actually how viewers come to appreciate art? Right. Mm. Well, I come with a sort of gimlet eye, I suppose, because we all know that both is going on all the time and that the press are great spinners of like what's hot and new. Now, yeah, perhaps Marie Kondo's book helps people to get rid of some of the crap they have in their life. But that's really different than, you know, interior decorating. And there is so many uses of the word maximalism right now, especially with fashion. If you look at like what's happening with Gucci and yeah, I look at all that stuff and what's happening in interior design magazines. But a lot of it is pattern on pattern. It's not stuff. So there's kind of distinctions that I think are, they're interesting. Mm -hmm. They're not, you know, critical, but are they influential at all? Not while I was making the show, but there is always some kind of like, it's fun when you start to read the word that you're using to describe your exhibition. It's fun when you say to a colleague, I'm doing a show called Less is a Bore, and they say to you, oh, it's about maximalism. Like they know, <laughs> and you think, oh, okay, something's going on. People, people are looking, people are getting it. And what you're telling me about an economy being good, I think that is probably critical. But then you look at the 80s and how that got really minimal, mm. that a sign of wealth is to have a super clean apartment with nothing out. And I think it still is. Like, you see these interior design magazines, you think, who lives like that? Exactly. I mean, honestly, like, <laughs> okay, they have a lot of closets and they could put everything away. But I think also that one starts to decorate your body and decorate your home a little bit more exuberantly when when the outlook for the world isn't as rosy, that, that things feel that you want to maybe insulate yourself a bit more and add some joy and whimsy. I mean, I wear black a lot because... I stay clean in it, but I also <laughs> like to put on, you know, a patterned dress. And so I think it's all of those things that you're saying. It's it's not one thing. It's never one thing. The the world is a complex place and artists can can absorb that and kind of spit it back at us. And the artist I mean, I'm led around the nose by artists. That's what I love to do. I've been doing it for twenty five years. Where artists look, I I look too. And Everything I know is because an artist pointed me in that direction. Do you think that the trend toward however we come to it at this point of maximalism is is more or less here to stay for a while? Because I feel like people don't want to be so stripped down, except in their decluttering, which, as you pointed out, is not design or art. And you're right about that. But in the life of beauty, it feels as though you would want a little bit more complex content. You know, I agree with you, and I think it links back to actually what you even said about food, that our tastes are more open and expansive, that we're living in a world that is really struggling to be more accepting of everybody's personal expression. And, you know, it's a struggle. It can be uncomfortable. But I think people think, I don't need my apartment to look like that interior design magazine. It can look however I want it to. I can wear whatever I want. I can express my gender any way that I want. I can like the kind of art that I want to like. I was reading an article about a designer in Los Angeles that will kind of bedazzle your car and cover it. And I thought, <laughs> you know, they're saying, well, the car color that you get is so boring. And it's like, it's true. All the cars on the road are the same color. Why does it have to be that way? Why don't we put some like sparkle paint on it? So yeah, what you are proposing I agree with. We're being more open with ourselves. We're letting our freak flag fly a lot more. <laughs> so back to the, specifically back to the exhibit, um, for people who will come in and say, this is a lot to take in. <laughs> I'm not sure where I am. What one piece would you say to them? 
just make sure you go to this piece and give yourself a minute. Oh, Kelly. I mean. I know. Come on. Just pick one. Okay. <laughs> All my children. What piece? Well, oh my God. This is for the person who has, I know. is just a little overwhelmed. That's all. I'm, I'm not for someone like me who's going to come in and look at it all and, and be interested. I know. And, you know I know. Yeah. I'm like, I'm tracking through. You know, we talked about the tapestries yes. being pay white. Yeah. And I've already seen the audience really responding to those. There's a familiarity to kind of fabric, to that, that frenzy of pattern. And here we have an artist who is taking an archaic and ancient form of art of tapestry making tapestry of course bridged art and craft and she is creating a painting an image through a randomized process that comes from a data feed and it is spit out controlled by a computer and made on a you know a loom a digitized loom and talk about bridging like the oldest and the most contemporary kind of data. I mean, th these are thousands of data points. I might say that today in this room with you, that mm -hmm. that, is a, that is a critical work, uh, a very charged way of making and brings together a lot of the ideas in the show overall. So I guess I am a maximalist <laughs> because <laughs> I responded to the press release and then before I got here and saw anything. Yeah. Um, um, it expressed me. I wonder how you feel when you walk through and look at all the stuff that's there. I mean, are you a maximalist? Do you think at heart or is, it, or is am, it just, okay. All right, I okay. am a maximalist. <laughs> I maybe not always in my self presentation, you know, cause uh, you know, you can only have so many clothes, but I, <laughs> I like everything in the show. I, I'm a little overwhelmed by the show, but not in any way that's like uh, debilitating. I think that every work in the show is its own conversation. And then you have to want to kind of put that amazing full work in conversation with everything else in the room. People's eyes look a little like bugged out when they walk in, <laughs> but they also have giant smiles on their face. Because there's a lot of beauty in the show, I think, no matter what your taste. Uh, so I'm still processing it. I'm not afraid to say that. I think there's a lot of ideas in the show and there's a lot of questions, but I really like it. It is work I really like is, is to sort of try to answer a question quickly. I really like everything in the show. I would really be happy if I could take it all home with me. <laughs> All right, we have to talk about where uh, Less is a Bore came from okay. and why said person said it um, right. so that people won't be wondering where that come from. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, very well-known architect Robert Venturi, uh, who just passed away last year, wrote a book in the 1960s and 1966 called Complexity and Contradiction in Architecture. And he was putting forward ideas that were about looking back at the vernacular not looking back at the vernacular, just looking at the vernacular forms of architecture, but also looking back at Baroque architecture, Rococo, ornamentation, all the things that had been stripped away by what was called the international style, which are the glass and steel skyscrapers that we are all surrounded by. Of course, Boston has a lot of wonderful ornamentation and like beautiful old buildings. Yes. You look up and you're like, wow, look at that amazing tile work three stories up. Can you believe somebody took the time to do that? And Venturi... He said less is a bore as a sort of quippy response to Mies van der Rohe, the famous international style architect and modernist, who said less is more. 
Venturi's book was very, very important, and people were starting to use the word postmodernist, and postmodernists were interested in an embrace and sort of not filtering it all out and making it spare with clean lines. And by the way, those architects were responding to Victorian ornamented architecture. It was like, enough of this architecture with all of these surfaces we have to dust. Let's make it clean. <laughs> and, and you know, so this is a, something else that you already brought up. Everything is cyclical. Mm. You, cyclical, excuse me. You have this, and then there's a knee-jerk reaction to it. Then you have that. And then there's a knee-jerk reaction to that, and then we go back. It's like, circle. why did all the kids like the 80s right now? We already did it. You know, the, but we want to look back, and we want to see things again, and we see things anew. So that is where the expression came from. It's... Venturi was interested in humor. He brought humor into his architecture and design, along with his main partner, Denise Scott Brown. And to say less is a bore, it's funny. It's, it's humorous. So art is a conversation. And as our final question to you, what kind of conversation do you think that this particular exhibit is leading us to, we consumers of art? I hope that it leads us to more questions than we might normally be faced with in any kind of context. I hope that the exhibition with its multitude of ideas, multitude of visual experiences can even let us be a little more comfortable with discomfort. There's a lot of ideas to talk about in this show. And so I, I propose a lot of questions and the conversations are there. We're going to have conversations about taste about the ways artists might use pattern and how the patterns exist in the world and about gender, about um, race. That's like, that's actually all exists in this exhibition and where you want to go with it is, I guess, the conversation that I hope takes us somewhere. Thank you so much. Thank you. Janelle Porter is a guest curator at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston. She organized the exhibition Less is a Bore, Maximalist Art and Design, which is on view at the ICA now until September 22nd. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org slash news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at facebook.com slash under the radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineers are Doug Sugarts and John Parker. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.